thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm looking forward to today because we're going to take what we've done over the last couple of weeks and extend them in principle to some new areas in order to appreciate how important foundations are. So for the last two weeks, we've looked at the foundational question in regard to law and government. What does it mean to be human? That question has to be answered because law and government is directed to persons, to human beings. So if we don't know what it means to be human, then we won't know how to order the law to the good of persons and human beings. And today, what I want us to do is to think about the implications of that. Because where you start in answer to that question will determine where you wind up. As we noted the last two weeks, there are two views of what it means to be a human being, and there are really only two views. Do not be misled by the thought that there are three or four, or perhaps as Facebook says now, 150 genders, as if that's kinds of persons. One understanding of human beings, of persons, is grounded in the context of creation by a triune God, and the other is the non-existence of a triune creator, God. That's it. That's all that there are. Now, as to the first, we noted that the Christian doctrine of creation ex nihilo, simply meaning that what exists didn't come from or was not rearranged out of something else that preexisted, and we also mean that there is an absolute distinction between the creator and the creation, between the creator and human beings. And that this view, creation ex nihilo, by triune God, is the only foundation for a belief that we are made in the image of God. If you've missed that, let me encourage you to listen to the last two or three podcasts. Now, what that means, let's make sure we're clear on this, is that theistic evolution, which is very popular in circles that want to try to sound like they're not uh, anti-science, but yet still biblical. Theistic evolution in regard to the human person. Now, whatever else you may want to think about the creation of stars and moons and suns and fish and birds and all of that, but when it comes to the human person, theistic evolution and pantheism, as we explained before, do not allow for an image of God resident in the human person that has any objective meaning, any independent, real meaning. Now, as to the second view, there is what the United States Supreme Court has said, which is now the view of the human person that directs law in our country. It is the philosophy of law that governs our country today, and that is the human person is autonomous from any God, assuming that there is one. And each of us defines our identity and the liberty protected by the Constitution gives us the right to define and express that 
identity. That's the view of the human person, as I said last week, was set forth in the very first sentence of Obergefell versus Hodges, the 2015 decision by the United States Supreme Court dealing with marriage licenses. And it flows from the liberty right expressed in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was the court's 1992 abortion decision affirming Roe versus Wade. And in that case, the court said, at the heart of liberty, is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Okay, so there is no givenness, nothing fixed about anything to do with universe, human life, or meaning. It is made up by us, and we have to create our own meaning, which requires me to be able to create my own identity. And you'll remember last week we talked about legislation in the General Assembly dealing with pronouns and teachers and the claimed right of every student, the right of every student, remember, to have their own preferred pronouns, even if they did not correspond to any biological realities. Now, that is an introduction. I want us to listen to this clip from Jeff Schaefer, who's been a guest on this podcast in the past. He's now the director of the Hale Institute at New St. Andrews College. And let me give you just a little bit of the context for this clip. Jeff was speaking last summer at our Restoring the Vision conference with Dr. George Grant. And he was addressing in particular the worldview and the rationale employed by the United States Supreme Court in Obergefell versus Hodges and its implications. As I said at the top of the show, today we want to look at the implications of how we understand what it means to be human because it will have effects down the road. It will inevitably produce certain outcomes. Just the same as if you, you know, want to go to New York City from Nashville and you set off, a, you know, just three degrees off, you're going to wind up, you know, in some other place than New York City. So with that, let's listen to what Jeff had to say. If male and female are not real and objective states of being with personal and public significance, if bodies are not revelatory of our identity and meaning, the family as it has been known historically is a goner as a public category in the law. And in that legal climate, the continuation of something like the outlines of the family <clears throat> can only be tentative and precarious. And it's redefined merely as a contractual and pragmatic device, one that only exists at the dispensation of and on the terms of our civil overseers that permit it to do so who are at that point the family's lord and maker, and as a result of that status are in a position of interfering with or doing away with any or all of its relations as it pleases. Now, I want to note a couple of things here about what Jeff said, because what he said in that just one-minute clip is worthy of full understanding. First of all, he mentions that if bodies are not revelatory. In other words, if our 
bodies do not in themselves communicate anything that's true about the nature of who we are, the essence of what it means to be human, if, if they're irrelevant to our understanding of what it means to be human. That's what he's talking about. If bodies aren't revelatory, if they don't communicate something, and as we've talked in the past, God created to reveal his glory and if there is any aspect of creation to which we could point, to which we can run and say, see right here, the glory of God is not revealed, it is not evident, it is not plain, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, then I cannot be guilty before God of falling short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. I'm off the hook. God didn't provide a sufficient witness, a complete witness. There's a place where I can run and hide. Okay, now, that's what he means by bodies are revelatory. And the Supreme Court was saying, no, they don't reveal anything that's true about us. Then he also mentioned public meaning. Now, what, what the opposite of that would be is that bodies can have private meaning. So I can look at my body. I can declare that my body reveal something that's true about what it means to be human and what it means to be a man, but that's a private meaning, and it can't be a public meaning. It can't be a meaning that the public would be expected to grasp, hold on to, and develop civil law in connection with. It hasn't any public given meaning. And then, of course, he said, if these things are true, then the family the contours of the family, the understanding of the family, as we have historically known it, as the people who listen to this podcast probably understand it to be. He says it is a goner. It's gone. It's over. And why is that? Well, again, if there is no objective, or perhaps we would more appropriately say ontological meaning connected to our bodies, then there can't be any such thing with respect to marriage. And that's what the Supreme Court said. Our bodies are not revelatory of anything. They're, they're not really saying anything true about the nature of who we are that might therefore limit or define or inherit in this institution we've called marriage. It's now a matter of convention. It's a matter of what best serves society as we now conceive society composed of these autonomous nomads who each get to express and define their identity. Well, if I can do that with respect to my body, I ought to be able to do it with respect to marriage. And therefore, if those things are also true, that has to be true about the family. It will have to be true about the relationship between parents and child. What constitutes now a parent? Does the word parent have any objective or ontological meaning associated with it that limits what a parent is, that defines what a parent is, or is it too, like marriage now, a matter of convention and what best works for society? This, to me, is extremely troubling, and it's troubling that, to be honest, some of the legal leadership within the home education community, which depends upon a presumed natural right inherent in the relationship between a biological mother and a biological father, 
to educate and nurture their children. They, they assume that that can be preserved even though we have said there's nothing revelatory or any public meaning to bodies or to marriage. We're going to hang on to it when it comes to the relationship between a parent and child. I've been specifically told that by a prominent leader within that circle who's a lawyer that he'll concede the issue of gay marriage in order to hang on to and fight over parental rights. And that's just foolishness. It's foolishness. So if you know a homeschool family, or you care about a homeschool family, or you are a homeschool family, you need to listen particularly to the next few minutes. But even if you are not, you need to appreciate what's about to be said with respect to the family, because it will affect your family whether you home educate or not. Or it'll affect your children's ability to uh, raise and nurture their children, your grandchildren, according to your value system. So you need to listen. As I said in my new book, The Naked Court, what's been going on in the collegiate swimming pools at Yale and Penn with these transgender athletes has been going on in the Supreme Court for a long time. And I'm going to start us back in 1925 with a seminal case about parental rights, quote unquote, from 1925 that home education families in particular look to as the lodestar, the guiding star, the foundation, the precedent by which they will continue to have a fundamental right to the education and nurture of their children, and they are wrong. I hope you're listening. If you're a home education family or you know one, they are wrong for relying on that opinion. Now, I'm going to explain to you why that is the case. The case is known as Pierce versus Society of Sisters. Now, that case did hold on behalf of some Catholic sectarian schools that their rights were being interfered with to provide public education because the law in the state of Oregon said that up to a certain point in school, you had to go to a public school. You couldn't go to a private Christian school. I guess we probably didn't have at that time many private Christian schools because the public school system was essentially so Christian-oriented, I guess, but the Catholics wanted to provide their own uh, educational uh, processes and integrate into it their own belief systems, and, and so effectively this shut down the Catholic schools, and so they sued uh, for the interference this was uh, to their business, to their right to educate, and the Supreme Court said, well, effectively, too, it impinges on the rights of the parents. So. So the home education community and, and the broader familial community, all of us who, who want to have a right to, to nurture and discipline our children according to what we believe, we would look to Pierce versus Society of Sisters. But you have to appreciate that although the nuns and the schools and the Catholic institutions all argued for these rights of parents grounded in a natural law, in an organic truth, uh, an ontological truth about the nature of the family, and so that there was truly a jurisdiction there that the government shouldn't interfere, that was not the basis of the court's opinion. What happened in that case was that the court did not rest its decision on any kind of natural rights inherent in the relationship 
between biological mothers and fathers and their children. That was not it. What the court tried to do and successfully did was to develop a unanimous opinion and they had to get Justices Sutherland and Oliver Wendell Holmes in order to do that. Now, here's why this is important. Oliver Wendell Holmes was an avowed atheist, ardent proponent of evolution, and did not believe in any transcendent natural law. So had the court rested its decision in anything that Christian families would say, ah, there is a truth about this that the court has recognized, they would have never gotten his his concurrence in the opinion. So they didn't rely on those at all and instead said simply that those who have the care and custody of a child have the right to direct the child's education. But that begs the question, who has the right to care and custody? See the difference? Nobody opined on the court that because you're a biological parent, you have certain rights, and that right is to care in custody, and then because you have the right to care in custody, you have a right to the education and nurture of your children. No, that's not what the court said. So to trust merely in that precedent, which hangs in midair in the concept that, well, if you should happen to have care in custody, then, well, uh, okay, you have the right to direct the education of your children. But what's underneath it? Nothing. Nothing. Now, I'm going to go further here for a moment. Specifically, here's what the court said in Pierce versus Society of Sisters. That rights guaranteed by the Constitution may not be abridged by legislation which has no reasonable relation to some purpose within the competency of the state. Well, that's an important statement. Hear what they're saying. Is that your rights can't be abridged if there's not some legitimate purpose of the state within the competency of the state and the relationship between this interest of the state and the competency of the state and the legislation. So. If, if the legislature passed uh, legislation that said every parent needed to make sure their child used Crest toothpaste at night when they brushed their teeth, they'd say, well, there's no reasonable relationship between Crest toothpaste and the dental hygiene health of the child, which might be within the competency of the state. Well, that, that's, that's unreasonable. See, that's arbitrary. But, but now maybe if the state had simply said parents have to ensure that their child's teeth are brushed every night before they go to bed, well, now maybe that's a different story, you see, because you might say that the health of children in the state is within the competency of the state, and thus they can prescribe a requirement that the child's teeth be brushed. And the court followed up with the next sentence. Now listen to this. The child is not the mere creature of the state. Those who nurture him and direct his destiny have the right, coupled with the high duty, to recognize and prepare him for additional obligations. Now that sounds good until you stop and realize that if you're not a mere creature of the state, then that means to some extent you are a creature of the state, or your child is 
and your child's well-being is within the competency of the state. And so the state can determine what is in the best interest of the child, which is what it's been doing for any number of decades now, particularly in connection with divorce cases and in cases where they think there's dependency and neglect on the part of the parents. What's well, just in the best interest of the child, regardless of, and notwithstanding perhaps, the relationship between the parent and the child. The child becomes paramount, and the state's interest in the child becomes paramount. Now, you might say, well, it would be unreasonable to interfere with a biological mother and father's uh, education and nurturing of their children. But, now let's go forward a little bit. So let's come to this case, United States versus Windsor. In that case, the United States Supreme Court, uh, 2013 decision, said that Congress could not define marriage for the purposes of federal law that refers to marriage. So in other words, the federal tax law says that a married couple can get a certain kind of tax deduction. And Congress said, well, this is what we mean by married couple. It's a man and a woman. The Supreme Court said you can't do that. The court noted that Congress has typically deferred to the states and that the only reason Congress stopped deferring to the states is because some states were now uh, legalizing, authorizing same-sex marriage. And so the court said this, the Constitution's guarantee of equality must at the very least mean that a bare congressional desire to harm a politically unpopular group cannot justify disparate treatment of that group. And they said laws that have an animus, a hatred, an opposition to people uh, require careful consideration. Now, why is that so important? Well, we've just now said, have we not, with the Obergefell case, that there is no distinction between male and female. There's no distinction between male and female in regard to marriage. So now the question becomes, when you begin to deal with parental rights, how are you going to treat the relationship between two women who have to bring in a third party to create a child with whom one of the parties to the marriage will never have a biological relationship and continue to maintain any kind of lawful, legitimate distinction to a male-female couple that, that together, by themselves, with no introduction of third parties, bring a child into existence. How do you maintain the Constitution's guarantee of equality? Now, what will this mean in the future? I do not know. But since the court treated this distinction relative to homosexual persons as coming only from an animus, from a hatefulness, not coming from any real objective ontological distinction between two men and two women versus a man and a woman and what their relationship is and produces since there, there can't be any of that, how are you going to maintain that? every right then of parentage will become, as with marriage, a creation of the state.
And the state will then have an interest in making sure that this partial creature of the state is raised according to values that do not inculcate animus towards politically unfavored groups. And if that's what you're doing, then you may lose care and custody of your child because there's no inherent right to the care and custody of your child. Do you see where this is going, my friends? Do you, do you see now why I have been so focused, so adamant about the Marital Contract Recording Act, Senate Bill 562, House Bill 233? If we cannot reestablish in the states the jurisdictional of authority of a state to recognize objective ontological realities and truths and give public meaning to male and female in the context of marriage, then we won't be able to do it anywhere. I hope you'll share this with your friends. This is, this is not easy to get. I understand that. I've been thinking about these issues for six years, and so I, I have an advantage over everybody that's just hearing this stuff for the first time. But I beg of you, I plead with you, if you care about God's design for male and female in marriage and the family, if you believe that God's design, His creational design, intent and purposes for male and female in marriage and the family cannot be repudiated and thwarted and discarded and, and thrown into the trash bin of history without terrible negative consequences, if not now, in the next five years, 10 years, 15, 20 years, then I urge you, Listen to this over and over. Get this in your head. Share it with your pastor. Share it with fellow elders or deacons. Share it with your homeschool group. We must understand that the very foundations of law and therefore of society are at stake. Now, next week, I'm going to give you a full dose of hope that things do not have to continue in the direction in which they're headed and that change can be made in direction. And I hope you'll join me next week on another episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.